0: Today on Reparations in Action. As we have seen, over hundreds of years of colonial oppression, paired with hundreds of years of African resistance, that African people have never just accepted their oppression. They have always fought back. They have always resisted. And no oppressed people has ever just allowed themselves to be oppressed.
1: You're listening to Reparations in Action. Uhuru! You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, White Lies Shattered Series. My name is Jamie Simpson. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with black power, and the first 13 episodes we have dubbed the White Lies Shattered Series, which will use the theory of African internationalism developed by Chairman Omalia Shatella. Of the African People's Socialist Party to overturn the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of capitalism. At a time when parasitic capitalism is in the deepest crisis we have ever seen, from which it clearly cannot recover, we believe it is our responsibility to understand the history of how we got here through the eyes of the African working class. We will identify a myth or lie this colonial system spreads about itself each week and use the historical record and African internationalism to shatter that lie once and for all. We believe that reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired weekly. Today, we are taking on the white lie that African people sold themselves into slavery. With me today is Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. And uh, before saying hello to Jesse, I would like to acknowledge uh, that Penny Hess, chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, prepared the study that we will be going through today. And this outline for the show today is part of the Overturning the Culture of Violence project. And Overturning the Culture of Violence is a book that Chairwoman Penny Hess authored, and we will be using it uh, for today's show. So uhuru, and welcome, Jesse
0: Neville. Thank you, Jamie. It's really great to be back on Reparations in Action, and I'm very excited to take on this insidious lie that, quote-unquote, African people sold themselves into slavery. If ever there was a white lie that deserved to be shattered, To smithereens it is this one and i want to join you in saluting uh the uhura movement our leadership and and i particularly want to salute omali Yeshitela, the chairman of the african people's socialist party chairman omalia Yeshitela, who has fought for the liberation of africa and african people for half a century and who has put forward the influential understanding that African people are one nation of people around the world who have been forcibly dispersed by the process of kidnapping, the process of white people invading Africa, enslaving African people, selling them, stealing their labor, land, resources, and intellect. And we salute Chairman Omalia Eschatela because he is our leadership. He is the founder of the African People's Solidarity Committee, the organization of white people organizing in white communities as black power in white faiths under the party's leadership. And he is the develop, the founder who developed the theory of African internationalism, the political philosophy and worldview of the African working class that enables us as white people, as colonizers, to see the world as it really is, to see the world through the eyes of the oppressed. As a member of the African People's Solidarity Committee, Our job is to win other white people, to see that we have set ourselves up as the subjects of history. We claimed the the title as the victors, the conquerors, the colonizers, and we wrote history accordingly. We wrote the falsification of history accordingly. I also want to acknowledge Penny Hess, who prepared the outline that we are using for this presentation today on White Lies Shattered, and who is normally on the show every week, wasn't able to be with us today, but will be returning next week. And I want to appreciate Penny Hess, the chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee, for the years of research into the history of colonialism that she has done for the last four decades and more to corroborate the central premise of Chairman Amali Shatela's political theory of African internationalism, which is that capitalism, is a parasitic world economy that was built on slavery and colonialism, and that capitalism and white power are one and the same. So I appreciate Chairwoman Penny Hess for all of the work that she has done to make it possible for us to bring these understandings to the white population, the understandings of Chairman Omalia Shatella and African internationalism. And the system of white power and capitalism that we're talking about today is a system that justifies itself through its own quote unquote history, an elaborate web of lies and slander designed to justify the colonial domination and enslavement of the vast majority of the peoples of the world. An elaborate web of lies designed to justify the fact that white people are a minority of the world population, but control and consume 80% of the world's resources. So the white lies that we are talking about in this podcast, in this program, this, these are the lies that make up the dominant colonial narrative of European and North American society. These are not the kinds of things that you will only run into if you're browsing openly white nationalist, uh, forums on social media. These are the white lies that are fed to our white children in schools every single day and that we often accept and uphold as white people. So as for this lie that African people sold themselves into slavery, we want to start off by saying that we're not here to even debate this notion or to even dignify this lie as if it's something that needs to be disproven. We are here to categorically condemn this lie as pure, unmitigated slander against african people this is not a lie that derives from a lack of historical knowledge or information this is a lie which has been deliberately been which has deliberately been constructed contrived to forward the colonial narrative and to carry out a white nationalist attack on the righteous and legitimate struggle of african people for reparations This is not a historical argument. It is a political argument. It is a political argument invented to discredit the struggle of African people for power and self-determination and for reparations. And you can see that because it always comes up when you talk about reparations. When we say reparations are owed to African people, when we say slavery and colonialism gave rise to this system, and white people benefit from this, and we owe reparations as white people. The response from white nationalists of all stripes who oppose the struggle for reparations is to say, well, how is that going to work? Who's going to pay the reparations? Who's going to receive it? Africans sold themselves into slavery. So it is a political argument, it is a slander, and it is an absolute lie. And we want to set the record straight that contrary to this filthy white nationalist slander, the response of African people to slavery was and always has been fierce and relentless resistance. African people have always fought back. As Chairman O'Malley Shatella has said, from the first day that a white man made an African woman or man do something against their will, African people have resisted. African people resisted in Africa when the colonizers invaded. African people resisted on the slave ships when the colonizers took them on board to force them across the ocean, and African people resisted on the plantations. And African people resisted up until this very day. African people have always fight back. Have always fought back. And in the Caribbean, in every major Caribbean island, you will find a statue of an African hero, many of them African women, who is celebrated for leading a struggle of resistance to colonial chattel slavery. And it's just such a contrast to the statues and monuments of slave owners and slave drivers that you see throughout the United States and Europe and the UK, that in the Caribbean, those who are celebrated, those who are upheld, those who are looked at as the heroes, are those who fought back, those Africans who fought back. And the same is true throughout the United States and South America. The the leading cause of death for slave ship captains and crew was African resistance. So I wanna talk a little bit about this history. And this is based on, again, presentations that have been put forward over the years based on uh, the work that the research done by Penny Hess, the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, under the leadership of Chairman Omalia Shatella and the political understandings of African internationalism. And I want to say that um, when we look at, first of all, the resistance of African people on the continent of Africa to the European colonial invasion, this starts from day one. Africans fiercely resisted European colonial invasion. The Beha people of Sudan resisted European invasion since Roman times. Countless acts of resistance by African people to the European invasion and colonization of Africa. Continue with Queen Nzinga, who in the early 1600s fought Portuguese. the Portuguese assault on Angola and Queen Nzinga resisted the Portuguese enslavement. She made no concessions on the Portuguese slave trade and kidnapping of African people. In her 60s, Nzinga led an army that waged guerrilla warfare against the Portuguese and the white invaders could never defeat her. She died in her bed in her 80s. Queen Mother Ya Asantewa of Ghana, similarly fierce African woman freedom fighter in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, she raised a fierce army of 5,000 African soldiers against the British colonizers, and she is beloved as a hero in Ghana today. We look at the Zulu Wars of Southern Africa in the 1800s, that brilliantly defeated the British colonizers in Southern Africa, drove out, surprised the British imperialist occupation forces with a trained army of 20,000 African warriors who killed the majority of the British forces. And the Zulu fought the white colonizers for 100 years, a century of relentless, unending resistance. The Matabele Wars in Zimbabwe in the 1890s Uh, incredible resistance fighters who waged a struggle against the British colonizers led by the notorious imperialist genocidal mass murdering pig Cecil Rhodes. African people armed themselves with rifles that they gained through killing the British invaders. And the British responded by using Maxim machine guns for the first time in history, slaughtering 1500 African freedom fighters in a single afternoon. The uh, Mahi Mahi Wars in Namibia from 1905 to 1907, which were waged against the German occupation and colonial rule in Tanzania, where the Germans submitted African people to forced labor and committed genocide against the Nama and Herero people, the template for the murder of Jews by Germans in the Second Imperialist War. Uh, another instance of courageous resistance and brutal repression and counterinsurgency. So you can see that there was never a moment where the Europeans were, were able to just go in and make a deal and take African people onto a slave ship. They faced resistance every single step of the way. And as we mentioned, that resistance did not end once the Africans were subjugated and forced onto a slave ship. It intensified. The leading cause of death for the slave ship captains and crew was African resistance. And then once they were brought to the United States and to the Caribbean and to other places around the world, African people captive in the United States fought the slave master, resisted, and escaped every single day. You have the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina in 1730, the largest uprising of African people in the American colonies under England where African people staged multiple coordinated insurrections, seizing weapons, killing the slave masters, raiding their homes, and marching towards St. Augustine, Florida, where under Spanish law, they would, they would have been free. And they held their own against the British for over a week. This was uh, 70 years before the 1800 Gabriel's Rebellion in Virginia, which was inspired by the incredible African revolution of Haiti, as were many uh, African uprisings throughout the United States and throughout the world. They were emboldened and empowered by the incredible revolutionary example established by Jean-Jacques Dessalines and Toussaint Louverture in, in the uh, African revolution of Haiti in 1804. Uh, Gabriel sought uh, to raise an army of 1,000 Africans who had marched to Richmond with the slogan Liberty or Death and take the armory and the governor hostage. And he and 25 other African freedom fighters were hanged for their courageous resistance. This was 11 years before the Louisiana African Rebellion, which was another incredible rebellion inspired by the African Revolution of Haiti, and which turned out to be the largest and most successful uprising of enslaved Africans in US history that took over a plantation, seized uniforms, guns, and ammo, from the slave masters and marched to New Orleans, gaining hundreds of followers and fighting pitched battles with white soldiers. And then you have the famous uh, uprising of Telemach, uh, who is also known by as the name Denmark Vesey in South Carolina in 1822, an incredible insurrection, also inspired by the African Revolution of Haiti, uh, that actually had a plan to sail to Haiti after killing uh, after a plan to kill the slave masters of Charleston, South Carolina, and liberate the enslaved Africans they had planned to sail to Haiti. 1831, Nat Turner says, strike at night and spare no one, driving fear into the hearts of the white slave masters. And Nat Turner and 70 armed African resistance fighters attacked 15 homes, uh, resisted the white slave master population, and eluded the authorities for more than a month. So this is just in the united states alone this doesn't even include the 1500s the 1600s the 1700s the 1800s where there was ongoing resistance to colonial slavery in latin america where you can see in a place like the island of guadeloupe they have a beautiful statue of a pregnant african woman resistance fighter named solitude who led an army of african resistance against the french army of napoleon while she was pregnant in 1802, and who was later hanged by the French after she had her baby, um, the Wolof rebellion of San Domingo against Diego Columbus, who was the vile, genocidal son of Christopher Columbus, and most of the Africans escaped from uh, from that from San Domingo from the slave plantation, the sugar plantation and formed independent Maroon communities with the indigenous people. And you also had the Maroon Wars of Jamaica from 1655 to 1738, led by the great nanny, uh, leader of the Maroons, who was a leader loved and recognized for her leadership and guerrilla warfare skills. And there's so many other examples. And again, uh, just want to point out the incredible African revolution of Haiti, which was the um, first successful anti-colonial struggle in history that, you know, inspired African resistance and other anti-slavery and anti-colonial struggles all around the world. And it was begun by Toussaint Louverture and completed by Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the victorious revolution of Haiti that crushed Napoleon's army, the strongest army at that time, and established the first liberated African state in the world. And in the liberated Haiti, slavery was abolished by an all-African government and oppressed peoples anywhere in the world were invited and welcome, and given safe haven uh, in Haiti under a constitution that prohibited white people from owning land. And of course, over the years, Haiti has been brutally attacked by French and U.S. imperialism because it represented such an incredible example of resistance. And Marcus Garvey... In 19, in 1916 to 1940, the Garvey movement, under the leadership of an African man born in Jamaica, who organized all throughout the world and built a movement of 11 million Africans all around the world under the slogan, Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. And Marcus Garvey and represented, you know, a continuation of that resistance. and. Malcolm X and the struggle of the 1960s was influenced heavily by Garvey. Malcolm X's parents were Garveyites. In the 5th, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, anti-colonial revolutions swept Africa. You had Patrice Lumumba in Congo, I mean in uh yes, in Congo, you had Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. You had many others uh, and you had struggle in South Africa, you had courageous resistance by African people and national liberation struggles sweeping the continent of Africa. And then, of course, in the 1960s, this resistance pierced directly into the heart of imperialism with the rise of the incredible Black Revolution of the 1960s. Revolution had become the main trend around the world, and it was headquartered inside the United States in the belly of the beast with the African liberation movement that was considered by the FBI at the time as the greatest internal threat to the security of the United States since the Civil War, and which was in a source of inspiration to freedom-fighting oppressed peoples all around the world, including in places like Vietnam. So th- the continuum of African resistance has conti- is, is ongoing. It is alive today in the African People's Socialist Party, in Chairman Omalia Shatella, in Deputy Chair Ona Zaneh Shatella. In Secretary General Lawezi Kinshasa and the African Socialist International, the Uhuru movement, the worldwide movement of African people fighting to end the ongoing legacy and reality of colonial slavery and to win power and self-determination over their lives. So again, white, you know, when white people say Africans sold themselves into slavery, not only is it a lie, but is it it is a horrible slander and insult to the millions of African people who gave their lives in courageous, unrelenting resistance to slavery from day one until now. Thank you, Jesse. And we're going to
1: now read from Penny Hess's Overturning the Culture of Violence. And uh, we begin on page 47 in a section called Human Bondage. The terrible impact that slavery has had on the continent of Africa cannot be calculated. The destruction of magnificent civilizations, the breakup of family and kinship circles, the massive depopulation, forced impoverishment, famine, and starvation, the ravishing of an environment which had been so conducive to human civilization for millennia. From open, educated, prosperous, and democratic societies, African people now lived in sheer terror, never knowing when their village or town would be raided for human loot by these white invaders. Some North American people cynically place the blame for the enslavement of African people on the shoulders of African collaborators who participated in the kidnapping of their own people. Impacted by the social destruction wreaked by invading Europeans, a tiny minority of the conquered people did find their own survival by participating in this treachery. The setting up of collaborators among the colonized population has been a successful tool of domination in every instance of European colonialism around the world. Africa is no exception. Europeans attack societies in Africa, Asia, or the Americas, destroying their traditional economies and long-standing social relationships. A unilateral colonial economy which starves the people and creates dependency on the colonial power is militarily enforced. The European invader gets richer and richer through his blood-sucking relationship and offers resources, guns, and special status to a minority sector of the oppressed population. The selected elite of the, of the colony can themselves become enslaved or carry out the will of white power. If they take any kind of stand independent of the colonizer, as have, say, Panama's Manuel Noriega or Iraq's Saddam Hussein in today's world white power spares them none of its wrath. This plan has worked well over the centuries. A few people in every colony have participated in devious imperialist schemes of slavery, genocide, torture, and exploitation against their own people, a collaboration which benefits no one more than the European or North American mother country. The statement that Africans enslaved their own people separates out African people from other colonial subjects, all of whom have had their share of betrayal among their ranks. It is a statement of imperialism's historical need to mobilize public opinion against African people. Like the general white attitude toward the government-imposed drugs and dependent drug economy in today's African communities, this statement lets the parasitic colonial economic system off the hook. It is an anti-black expression of unity with the oppression of African people, saying, quote, they did it to themselves. Meanwhile, all white people everywhere still benefit from the parasitic economic system, which has as its foundation the enslavement and continued exploitation of African people. Most Africans resisted enslavement with all of their energy. Rebellions on slave ships were common. According to one source, many deaths on slave journeys across the Atlantic derived from violence, brawls, and above all, rebellions. There was probably at least one insurrection every eight to ten journeys. For example, Africans successfully rebelled in 1532 aboard the Portuguese slave ship the Misericordia. The 109 Africans on board rose and murdered all the crew except for the pilot and two seamen. Those survivors escaped in a longboat, but the Misericordia was never heard of again. Slave ship owners often threw Africans off the ships just to collect the insurance money. One famous case was that of a ship owned by William Gregson and George Case, both former mayors of Liverpool, England. The captain threw 133 Africans into the sea because if Africans were to die naturally, the owners would lose money. But if African people were thrown alive into the sea, supposedly for the safety of the crew. It would be the loss of the underwriters. So many African people died en route that it has been said that sharks followed slave ships all the way from Africa to the Americas. Africans who survived the notoriously brutal Middle Passage, as the Atlantic crossing was known, reached the Americas barely alive. If they were too ill, they were left to die on the shore. They were sold like animals on public auction blocks, naked or in rags weakened and emaciated, having survived the months below deck with disease and malnutrition, not to mention the emotional ravages of such an experience. Many Africans committed suicide to avoid enslavement, a practice otherwise unknown in African culture. White buyers came to the market for slaves, feeling the Africans' limbs and bodies, much as butchers handled calves. The slaves were often asked, as they had been told to do before leaving Africa, to show their tongues and teeth, or to stretch their arms. In the Americas, Africans were broken in by submitting them to inhuman terror in an attempt to crush out any resistance. The breaking process was psychological as well as physical, and included being forced to learn a version of a European language and to take a European name, something many Africans militantly resisted. Under the domination of their white slave masters, African people of all ages were branded, women on the breasts. Africans were whipped until they were deeply scarred, and their ears or earlobes were cut off. People were slashed in the face, and their hands and feet were cut off to prevent them from running away. Men were castrated. Women were raped. Women's babies were cut out of their bellies for punishment, and any man, woman, or child could be forced to wear iron collars on their necks for the rest of their lives under such brutal conditions normal human relationships between men and women or parents and children were interrupted and nearly impossible mothers were forced to work the full 9 months of pregnancy often giving birth in the field they were then forced to abandon their children as they had to keep on working or nurse the children of the slave master we we pause there That's Overturning the Culture of Violence by Penny Hess. We're going to go now, I'm going to read from Hosea Jaffe, A History of Africa. And we're reading this uh, section, European Colonialism, Resistance, and Collaboration, beginning on page 48. The Goree curator and Leopold Senghor put the total number murdered by European slavers at 200 million more than my estimate of 150 million in a work on africa of 1971 how many more would have been killed had they gone meekly to slavery can only be imagined the death toll was about one in every 3 of the 600 million africans who lived during those dark centuries of the, during those centuries of dark europe in africa the death toll was created by the mode of the slave traffic The long journey to the coast, the violent seizure of slaves from tribes and societies by chiefs collaborating with Europeans, the lack of food, and the long voyage. Resistance saved whole villages, untold millions of lives, engineered many escapes, frightened off many slave expeditions, thus raising the cost of a slave and of slaving, making it more difficult to finance and execute. Captain Newton, the slaver and abolitionist, complained in 1752 that French competition threatened to drive British slavers out of the market. The capital outlay to prevent the frequent rebellions of the slaves at Goree and other slave ports on the ships en route to the coast and at the slave marks under the cannon of the forts was in proportion to the scale of resistance resistance by unenslaved farmers and artisans, intellectuals and congregations, pagans and Muslims, had a double effect, protecting those not yet enslaved and fortifying the slaves and aiding their rebellions. Just as the old pre-colonial societies had a communal basis for their largely domestic slavery, so the tribal and tribally-based despotic societies set up a resistance to slaving which formed the basis for the rebellions of the slaves themselves. Before they were slaves, they had been members of those very societies, and were to perpetuate them in many cultural ways under slavery in America and the West Indies. When communal resistance destroyed the forts, it clearly destroyed the very means for slave trading until the slavers could rebuild them. Every mission raised served that same purpose of reducing and postponing enslavement and its death toll. Resistance arose everywhere, against the collaborator King Alfonso I in Mbanza, Conga, against Gao and de Gama, against the Perch- Portuguese viceroy of the East Indies, de Almeida, who was killed in 1509 by Khoikhoi herders, against the sacking of Kilwe and other Zanj towns, Portuguese forts were destroyed at Kilwe and Mombasa. There was a popular urban uprising in Mombasa in 1529, a mass rebellion in Mbanza after 1534, a mass armed Islamic rising under Gráinne against the Portuguese in Ethiopia in 1540, and popular rebellions that drove the Portuguese out of Ethiopia forever and humbled the dynastic collaborators and the Catholic converts. There were attacks on British slave traders in Guinea in 1556. De Silveira was slain and his Portuguese army defeated by the Mueni Mutapa resistors in 1560. A popular slave rebellion killed many Europeans on Sao Tome. Tribes used poisoned arrows against John Hopkins of Plymouth in 1567. Jagas resistors besieged the Portuguese at Mbanza Court. There were the Monacongo rebellion against Portugal in 1570, the 1573-74 Moeni Mutapa defeats of Barreto and Vasco Fernandez, the 1576 and 1589 defeats of Diaz's powerful army by Angoa, the Zimba rising against the Portuguese on the Zambezi resistance to the Augustinian missionaries on Pemba in 1597. All these were high points of 16th-century resistance. Resistance continued in the 17th century despite the development and consolidation of the slave trade, forts, missions, commerce, and plantations. The people of Mozambique resisted the re-entry of the Jesuits in 1607. In Tete, the Portuguese, had to use an armed guard of 2000 collaborator troops against massive resistance. In 1612, the Angolan bishop complained of mass resistance to baptism. In 1613 to 1616, Madagascar peasants rejected Portuguese colonists from Gao from Goa. In 1616, a Dukela River revolt in Angola was crushed. In 1628, the new Mueni Mutapa king attacked the Portuguese. In 1631, the Mombasa Sultan led a revolt against the Portuguese at Fort Jesus. And in 1644, the Malagasy wiped out would-be British colonists. The year 1652 saw not only the landing of the Dutch at the Cape, but also the beginning of two and a half centuries of tribal resistance there. Rebellions along the Swahili coast in the same year broke the power of Portugal north of Mozambique. In 1659, uh, Atsumo led a war against the Dutch and was sent to Robben Island, which has remained a political concentration camp for over 300 years. In 1660, Capuchins told of African, of African hostility to them. And a slave revolt broke out at the Cape in 1668. The Macalanga revolt in Mozambique crippled Portugal there for decades. In 1672, the uh, Cochaquia Khoikhoi revolted against Holland at the Cape, and and Gonema led a war o- <clears throat> led a war which only ended with his death in 1682. Not until 1685 did the Portuguese defeat. Matamba. The next year saw another slave rising in Cape Town. In 1693, the Danish fort in the Akwamu kingdom was seized. In 1693, Omani led Africans Africans besieged Fort Jesus. In 1701, the Senegalese Damo of Peor seized Brû. Director of the French Royal Company. Three hundred years of colonialism had gone by, and three hundred years of resistance the inability of the european soldiers and men of god to break africa's spirit is depicted in the satirical base relief by Dahomey craftsmen in the courtyard of the gore slave museum showing a christian on a stranded ship it's a it's a very stark image and a, a really important book hosea Jaffe's history of a history of africa and it's it's really important i think also to understand the role of neocolonialism in the whole process of colonial uh, European-inflicted slavery, and the fact that many Europeans, including and especially the British, very consciously used the imperial maxim of divide and conquer to create and maintain a neocolonial population that the uh, differences between different African peoples, between different African nations, uh, these, these were not antagonistic differences by and large prior to the arrival of European colonialism. These rifts in the society were exploited by Europeans who used that concept of divide and conquer to facilitate their own primitive accumulation or theft of wealth. And it is also very important to remember that this assault on Africa, this is not something that is some sort of unfortunate symptom of capitalism. It is capitalism. It built Europe, built capitalism, built the white world. And you know, it's it's also I think Im- important to remember, as uh, I, Walt, Walter Johnson wrote the, uh, the the essay, the long long shadow of King Cotton. And I want to just paraphrase that, that in, in that he asserts, as most historians with with you know any perception understand now, it is impossible to talk about capitalism and slavery as two separate entities. They are one and the same. And we want to turn now to Chairman Omalia Shatella and the question of African internationalism. In Chairman Omalia Shatela's book, Vanguard, the advanced detachment of the African Revolution which is the political report to the 7th Congress of the African People's Socialist Party. And we begin in Vanguard on page 280. We are not Marxists. We are historical materialists. We have used the historical materialism of Marx, the science of investigating and analyzing society, to investigate and analyze our reality as Africans. Our findings prove that we are a part of the primitive accumulation mentioned by Marx in his works. Malcolm X, a materialist of sorts in his own right, has been quoted as saying that a person watching someone sitting on a hot stove would describe the experience differently from the person actually sitting on the stove. This is true. The spectator is not required to have a full understanding of the experience. The victim of the hot stove is provoked by his reality. It becomes a historical necessity to understand the question. Using the collective experience of African people as a starting place, we were able to use the science of dialectical and historical materialism, cleansing it of its Marxist metaphysics and idealism, to investigate and analyze our relationship to the world. For us, the rise of capitalism in the world is not based on some purely abstract Marxist theory about the development of human society. It is not a theoretical question. Primitive accumulation is not a theory. The rape of Africa, the enslavement of our continent and our people, the forcible dispersal of Africans throughout the world as a means of rescuing Europe from disease and poverty, the process that gave rise to capitalism, is a matter of historical record. Marx, the spectator, did not have to understand this. The person sitting on the hot stove, the living, breathing, thinking, primitive accumulation, would either understand this question or perish. We chose to understand. More than that, we chose to develop a worldview stemming from this understanding. This is the origin of African internationalism. African internationalism is simply the worldview stemming from a historical materialist investigation and analysis of the world, with its starting point being the experience and role of Africans and Africa in the advent of capitalist imperialism as the rise of white power. Parasitic capitalism is the real issue. It is this reality that ultimately distinguishes African internationalist socialism from the struggle for white rights that usually characterizes most movements of Europeans worldwide. It is the difference in socialism resulting from overturning the pedestal upon which all capitalist activity occurs and some variation of the national socialism achieved by the infamous Nazis of Germany. So, I. Finish the reading there from Chairman Amalia Shatella in Vanguard. And I think it's just I, I really salute this book. And I think it, it's absolutely critical that when when we look at, at such a heinous lie as African people sold themselves into slavery, that we we look at the objective truth. And as you were saying at the beginning of this episode, Jesse. This is not some sort of innocent academic debate that we can consider here. This must be something that we categorically condemn because it is so demonstrably false, whether we look at the historical record or we just follow the money. If we look at the white world, we can see where the money is. U.S. capitalism controls the world economy, and it is filthy rich. On the other hand, Africa is poor and being looted daily and still to this very day. However, this this poverty experienced by African people, whether we see it in the Congo, whether we see it in uh, occupied Azania, also known as South Africa, this is not a natural poverty. This is not a self-imposed poverty. Africa. Is wealthy in terms of natural resources. It is by far the wealthiest continent on planet Earth. So there is massive, massive wealth that is being stolen from Africa right now. And there was massive wealth stolen from Africa through the process of the assault on Africa and the kidnapping of African people and the the genocide that occurred in that process. When you look at 200 million people murdered. One out of every three African people alive on the face of the planet. What do we call that but genocide? And you look at the massive wealth that came from the genocide, the extermination of indigenous peoples here in the Americas, the theft of their resources and land, the fact that so many of them were murdered that the Europeans had to call for African slaves to be introduced into the quote-unquote new world, another lie, right? That it was a new world. So we also want to look at the question of the uh, data, right? We want to look at the question of this database that exists that Europeans uh, kept records, extensive records of these slave voyages. And there is a website, um, it's called slavevoyages.org, that documents the, just the known voyages of Europeans involved in kidnapping and selling African people for profit. And you, you can look at this over 36,000 long list, and it shows you the name of the ships, the locations that they stole the African people from, the, the names of the captains, how many people were transported, where, where they went. So this is not some mystical question, it's, it's very provable. And again, that is slavevoyages.org if people want to take a look at that. And also to say that we have to consider this triangular trade question, that this wealth was a transferal, it, it was a theft of human beings, first of all, as commodity, and it, it produced commodities. So the triangular trade was a process of Europeans going from, say, England to Africa, let's say Ghana, and stealing African people, and then going to the Caribbean or uh, North America and bringing the Africans there in chains, the ones who survived, and then collecting the commodities, the raw commodities produced by African people, whether that was uh, sugar whether it was cotton, whether it was alcohol like rum, whether it was guns, beads, cowrie shells, and countless other you know very very rich resources that they then took back to England, where a newly burgeoning white middle class and white working class who were no longer feudally enslaved serfs on their own land, but able to go to factories, could refine those materials into the products. That became the lifeblood of capitalism. This is capitalism. This is how there is no separation between the slave trade and capitalism itself. So, uh, stolen labor, it, African people, just, just to say also that the, the uh, African People Socialist Party in, in 1982 held something called the first uh, tribunal on reparations to African people. And during that process, it was determined that $4.1 trillion are owed to African people in terms of. The, the stolen labor, unpaid labor alone. And that is 1982
0: dollars. And just on that, I just want to salute the work done by Chairman Amali Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party to begin to quantify the ultimately unquantifiable uh, enormity of the wealth stolen from African and colonized peoples uh, from the initial assault on Africa and the enslavement of African people and on till today. And I think this is so important to lay this out, Jamie, and just really appreciate um, all of what you just put forward. And again, the the research and preparation from Penny Hess, chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, and um, the leadership of Chairman Omali Shatella and African internationalism, which Chairman Omali has also pointed out that in addition to the uh, the ultimately incalculable uh uh, amount of resources and labor, the value of stolen labor, the resources of the, the, the raw materials and land, and, uh, and also the intellectual brilliance and scientific knowledge and artistic genius, you can't even calculate it. You can't even calculate the value of the ability for white people to have life uh, itself at the expense of suffering, torture, pain, trauma colonial, you know, brutality that continues to this very day. And as we have quoted in in previous episodes, as the chairman says, uh, African people under colonialism are forced to produce and reproduce real life for white people, not for themselves. And as the chairman has said so eloquently, colonialism is something which cannot even be described. And when the indigenous people first encountered the white man and Uh, and began to experience the brutal savagery of white colonial terror uh, against the indigenous population, they literally had no words in their vocabulary to describe what they were witnessing and what they were experiencing. And Aimé uh, Césaire, who is an African anti-colonial poet and writer from Martinique, published a book called Discourse on Colonialism in 1955, in which he said, Quote, between colonizer and colonized, there is room only for forced labor, intimidation, pressure, the police, taxation, theft, rape, compulsory crops, contempt, mistrust, arrogance, self-complacency, swinishness, brainless elites, degraded masses, no human contact, but relations of domination and submission, which turn the colonizing man into a classroom monitor, an army sergeant a prison guard, a slave driver, and the indigenous man into an instrument of production. My turn to state an equation. Colonization equals thingification. Reducing, that's Aimé Césaire, reducing African people into things, into commodities, into machines of production. This is the dehumanization that is at the core of colonialism. And as the chairman has said, it is absolutely necessary for colonialism to function, for the colonizer, the colonialists, to implement the most extreme violence you could possibly imagine or even couldn't imagine. The terror is, is, is a necessary component of colonial domination because as we have seen over hundreds of years of colonial oppression, paired with hundreds of years of African resistance, that African people have never just accepted their oppression. They have always fought back. They have always resisted. And no oppressed people has ever just allowed themselves to be oppressed. And that is true today in the form of the African People's Socialist Party, which represents the highest expression of the struggle for African people to resist slavery and colonialism. The revolutionary party of the African working class and poor peasantry under the leadership of... Chairman Omalia Oshetela and Deputy Chair Onesne Oshetela and the other African revolutionary freedom fighters who are leading the worldwide struggle of African people for power, the anti-colonial struggle with the ambitious strategy to liberate African people as one nation forcibly dispersed around the world, to regain control of their stolen resources, to win national liberation, and yes, to achieve reparations to African people the repair, the damage, the full return of the stolen wealth back into the hands of African people and the struggle of African people over the centuries, whether the Zulu, Queen Nzinga, Patrice Lumumba, Marcus Garvey, it is alive today in the African People's Socialist Party and in Chairman Omalia Shetela. So this is the real, this is the truth about slavery and how African people responded to the imposition of slavery on their continent and on their people by white power and by white people. And again, this is not an innocent historical debate. This is not a question of just not having the right information. This is our response. This is our denunciation of one of the most foul white nationalist lies and slander against African people that imperialism has come up with in order to justify its place in the world. And Jamie, I just wanted to end by quoting a very powerful statement that was made by Patrice Lumumba, who was the first independent leader and president of Congo, who was assassinated by Belgium and the CIA in 1961. In his last letter to his wife, before he was killed, before he was assassinated in 1961, he wrote, quote, history will one day have its say. It will not be the history taught in the united nations washington paris or brussels but the history taught in the countries that have rid themselves of colonialism and its puppets africa will write its own history and both north and south of the sahara it will be a history full of glory and dignity and that's patrice lamumba and that's why we feel it is our responsibility as the colonizers to do our part in shattering and destroying these white colonial lies, in rejecting these white colonial lies, and in educating ourselves on the truth of the world through the eyes of African internationalism, in embracing the teachings of Chairman Omalia Shatella and teaching ourselves and our children the truth about the world, so that we can be part of changing the world, fighting for reparations, and be a part of a future where no human being is oppressed or exploited.
1: Uhuru. Oh, Jesse. Yeah, I think it's, it's so very important. I couldn't agree more with everything you said. And it was just beautiful words, especially from Patrice Lumumba that, that you just shared. And I think j- just to say it's so vital that we recognize this is, as well as not being a debate, this is not a discussion of the past. This is so much about the present, about the ongoing oppression of African people and about the optimism that we can unite with If we recognize that we're now in the period of the African Revolution, as Dr. Leonard Jeffries called it. This is the the period of the African Renaissance from the era of 1900 on, you know, to uh, Marcus Garvey and his incredible organization, the UNIA, of uh, over 11 million Africans uh, that we know of, and to this period with the African Socialist International and Chairman Omalia Shatela. So it's just so important that we continue to expose these lies, and I think we can count this horrific one, this slander that African people sold themselves into slavery, officially shattered. And I want to really salute the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of Overturning the Culture of Violence, who put together the outline for today's episode of White Lies Shattered, Penny Hess. And I want to I wanna thank you, Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. And I want to thank all of you out there for tuning in to another episode of Reparations in Action. You're listening
0: to Reparations in Action. Reparations now!